and welcome to Looking Back at Lost, where each week I look at another episode of ABC's Lost to see how that episode fits into the series as a whole. Today I'll be covering episode 301, entitled A Tale of Two Cities. This is the 50th hour of the series, hooray, and there are 71 to go. By the way, as a side note, I think that somehow for uh, a number of my previous episodes, I think that the numbering system was off somehow, but uh, I'm certainly now good to go, and this is indeed the 50th episode, so... Certainly a milestone for the podcast, a milestone for the series, and uh, thank you for joining me for these first 50 episodes. It's amazing to think that uh, it won't be too long before I'm at the halfway mark of the series, uh, which, uh, shocking indeed, shocking indeed. Certainly the, uh, oh, in a week or two, it'll be the the one-year anniversary uh, of the podcast being up. Uh, I believe that that was February... 11th, 12th that the first episode went up, so I guess that would be, uh, next week's episode will be the, uh, the one-year anniversary, perhaps not to the exact day, but, uh, certainly in terms of the week. Uh, also, thank you for, uh, joining me here on, f- uh, Friday releases. I've moved back to that in order to, uh, hopefully reach a slightly larger audience, and if not, it's all good fun nonetheless. And, uh, with that, let's now jump into a little bit of, uh, feedback from listeners. Uh, I received a message uh, from LostyGirl79 on Twitter. She said, listening to your podcast for Live Together, Die Alone. I always love hearing discussions from other Losties. So thank you very much for listening, Losty Girl. Uh, also, longtime listener Kyle Kuhn had this to say regarding uh, Live Together, Die Alone, and probably specifically regarding me wondering why it was that they, uh, that they had people in the hatch to push the button uh, to push a computer button when you just could have had a computer kind of, you know, push its own button, so to speak. And uh, Kalkun said, Rosinski wouldn't like the, ha- the hatch automated. What if the computer failed? You would need a human. Plus his ego wouldn't allow for it. Can you see him? Can't you see him telling everyone, my station, I'll man it? And you know what? I think that Kalkun has an excellent, excellent point there, particularly given where... Uh, computers were in the late 70s when the hatch was finally completed, let alone when, uh, you know, the initial planning phase would have started uh, mid-70s, early 70s. Um, it, it, I, I agree with him totally. It's inconceivable to have, you know, just some computer plugged in with the knowledge that it's going to work, and uh, every so often you have the uh, Dharma equivalent of the Maytag man come in and check it to make sure it's working. That's that's not the state of computing in the 70s. And uh, an excellent catch there from Kalkun. By the way, a fun fact, Kalkun, I believe, was the last person to leave uh, an iTunes review for me all the way back in November. Tear. Maybe his review will inspire some other listener to go on there and write a review. But anyhow, let's uh, let's slog on to more serious uh, serious topics here. 
I had received uh, a message on the uh, on the listener line that I have, 732-707-1815, by the way, if you'd like to hear your voice on the podcast. Uh, I had received a message from somebody who actually did not want their, um, their message played on the podcast, but uh, I, I, it, it's an interesting comment and one that I think that uh, uh, this gentleman's feedback, I think, certainly warrants uh, being shared on the podcast and being discussed uh, for for a bit here, his concern was kind of coming off of uh, the the Live Together Die Alone podcasts. Uh, he said, you know, he enjoys the podcast very very much. He made reference to having listened to uh, some of the other podcasts that I'm a part of the the PH Geek podcast, the, the Alcatraz podcast, uh, the latter of which, by the way, is uh, is is doing nicely with uh, JJ's new show on and the former podcast, uh, the PH Geek podcast. Uh, Getting very few listeners, but that's okay. It's fun anyway. Um, but anyway, this gentleman called up, you know, said he's a fan, you know, fan of Lost, fan of the podcast, you know, a fan of the different things I do and all that. Uh, but he said he was a bit, um, I, I wouldn't even say put off. His request was to keep political discussions out of the podcast. And um, I'm fairly sure that he was referring to... Um, I know for one of the Live Together Die Alones, I, I had made reference to uh, uh, a couple of things kind of relating to um, issues going on in the mid-2000s when these episodes were new, um, weapons of mass destruction not being in Iraq, um, not being quite sure of uh, the claims of your leadership, this sort of thing. And uh, his... his um, Request, I think, was a fair one, which was, I think his statement was, uh, he tunes in to the podcast to kind of, uh, you know, to have a good time reflecting on the show, and uh, with there being all this political discussion out, uh, you know, it being election season and all that, at least here in the United States, you know, he he would prefer to get election discussion, political discussion in, in a news venue and not from the podcast. So I, I guess my response is this. First of all, I, I appreciate him taking the time to share, um, you know, what, what essentially was negative feedback. I mean, it, and again, it was with the, the kind of the caveat of he enjoys the podcasts that I do as, as a whole. And it was, you know, kind of disagreeing with, with this smaller point. But, uh, you know, so, so thank you, sir, for taking the time to call in with that. My, I, I suppose my response is this. I believe firmly that... Uh, in the show's DNA is a post 9-11 thing, for lack of a better intellectual word. It's it's a show that I think whose creation is consciously uh, that of of the post 9-11 world. Um, I I mean, I I continually think back to the shot uh, in the pilot episode, probably 60 seconds in, of Shannon standing on the beach just screaming. Uh, and to me, that always takes me back. You know, whenever we, whenever we have a, uh, you know, an anniversary of nine eleven go by, or uh, you know, kind of some some latest news that might appear. You know, the the family of a of a, you know somebody who who lost someone on nine eleven. You know, now the the kid has started middle school, or the kid has graduated college. Anytime kind of nine eleven is brought up, and there's a moment to reflect back on those feelings. Uh, I, I mean, obviously, Shannon is not the first thing to come to mind. Of course, obviously, there's you know greater and more 
more important things uh, fixed in, in real life. But I think that that image of Shannon captures how many of us felt on that day, uh, American or not, wherever you were in the world. Um, I think it captures that the feeling of 9-11 and the feeling of, of, of how one feels when they're the victim, uh, large or small, of, uh, of global terror, etc. So I would, I would say that to, to discuss the early seasons of the show with uh, an occasional eye towards 9-11, the post-9-11 world, post-9-11 politics, etc., I think that that is fair game uh, in this attempt to make the podcast uh, an intellectual pursuit. I'm certainly not saying that I'm the the final word for the show, but in in my attempt to share my intellectual uh, perception and my intellectual analysis of this show, kind of a literary analysis, I think that you you can't help but separate the show from its time, uh, just as one... uh, you know, would very necessarily have to look at, say, uh, the nature of uh, Victorian England to to properly discuss uh, a, a work by Dickens. Now, that said, um, perhaps my, in the Live Together, Die Alone podcasts, perhaps some of the connections that I floated uh, between kind of, you know, comments that the show was making about its own internal characters as that relates to uh, a certain political view, which uh, I, I suspect I'm on a similar political spectrum to that of the average uh, Hollywood writer's room. But um, nonetheless, I think the, 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 the gentleman who, who left the message, you know, he raises a fair point. The show is ultimately not political. In fact, I'd argue that when we get to the finale uh, of the series, it is... Uh, uh, I don't know the opposite of political. It's not about taking sides or factions or or groups or uh, any of this. It's about togetherness and oneness and finding you know finding our commonalities and really only focusing on that. So if I if I had injected some you know a combination of personal politics along with what I think are genuinely uh, vaguely politically informed decisions in the writers' room. If that, if that made uh, this gentleman uh, uncomfortable, that certainly wasn't my intention. Um, that said, uh, I, I think that when pertinent, I'm not going to shy away from sharing, uh, sharing things, sharing connections that I think may have influenced the story. Uh, and I'll just start to conclude by saying, when I said that 9-11 and the post-9-11 world is part of the DNA of the show, I did choose that phrase very carefully because I think just as, um, well, let, let's start to bring it to this episode, just as, for example, uh, Christian might be an alcoholic, so you might say, well, Jack has that in his DNA, it's up to the the individual to grow out of their origin, good, bad, pretty, ugly, whatever the one's uh, beginning might be, and it's up to the individual to to make its own way. And I think the show does that. I think that... Uh, the 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 guy who called in probably will be relieved that at least my memory of seasons three four five six is that there's less opportunity um, for the show to be reflecting the world that it's in. Perhaps as we moved farther and farther away from nine eleven, start of uh, the Iraq War, so on and so forth. Um, I think the show kind of moves out of its own origin as well, which is fine because it's you know it certainly was never meant to be a one-to-one analogy of the uh, of, of the present day. 
So, after that kind of weighty road, I hope uh, hope I haven't uh, turned off too many listeners who were like, just get to the freaking show already. So, with that, let's now get to the Wikipedia summary for this episode. Which, of course, is episode 301, A Tale of Two Cities. In flashbacks, we start with Jack's flashbacks. For Jack is going through a divorce from his wife, Sarah. He demands to know who she has been dating, but she refuses to tell him, so he spies on her and steals her cell phone. He proceeds to call every number in her phone, and ends up calling the phone of his father, Christian Shepard. After following Christian to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, Jack accuses him of sleeping with his wife and physically attacks him. After Jack is arrested, Sarah pays his bail and tells him Christian is no longer sober. She then leaves with an unidentified man after telling Jack that now he has something to fix. As for island flashbacks, new character Juliet Burke prepares for a book club meeting in a modern suburban home. The club is in a heated discussion of Stephen King's Carrie when they are interrupted by what sounds like an earthquake. The group leaves Juliet's house and Ben Linus, previously known as Henry Gale to the survivors, appears along with Ethan Rom, looking up to watch Oceanic Flight 815 break apart in mid-air. Ben quickly orders Goodwin and Ethan to join the survivors, stay undercover, and provide lists in three days. The camera zooms out to reveal that the suburb is actually on the island and is inhabited by the others. In the present-day story on the island, Kate wakes up on the floor of a locker room. Tom Friendly allows her to have a shower and afterwards forces her to change into a dress, after which she is led to an elegant breakfast on the beach with Ben, who tells her to put on handcuffs before she can eat. When she asks him why he is doing this, he tells her that he wanted to give her something pleasant to remember, as the next two weeks will be very unpleasant. Sawyer wakes up in a cage in the jungle near the Hydra station. A teenager, Carl, in a nearby cage initially ignores Sawyer, but then later expresses interest in Sawyer's camp and unlocks his cage, then Sawyer's. However, they are both caught, and Tom makes Carl, who is now beaten and bloody, to apologize to Sawyer before taking the teen away. Sawyer figures out the mechanical puzzle in his cage, though Tom says it only took the bears two hours. Kate is then put in Carl's now empty cage. Jack wakes up in a cell in the Hydra station, where Juliet gently interrogates him. At one point, Jack attacks her and attempts to escape, holding an improvised weapon to her throat. He orders her to open a door, but she refuses, claiming that to do so would kill them both. Ben appears and agrees that opening the door would kill them all. Jack throws Juliet away, then opens the door. As Ben dashes back through the door he came in, Water starts rushing into the hallway. Juliet helps Jack struggle into an adjoining room, tells him to push a button, which she had previously mentioned was for emergencies. He does so, and she knocks him unconscious. When he awakes, she shows Jack a file, which she says contains documents about his entire life. Juliet asks Jack if he has any questions about Sarah. After a pause, he says, Is she happy? Juliet replies yes, walks outside, and the episode ends with Ben congratulating her on a job well done. And with that, let's now get into my thoughts about the episode. 
uh, an episode that, uh, if you listened to last week's podcast, as I'm sure you did, uh, an episode that kicks off, for me, an interesting phase of the show. Uh, my memory is that there's many, many things of season three that I did not care for. Uh, I think, obviously, that's uh, that's the popular choice to some degree. Uh, Nikki and Paolo come to mind, although they're not in this episode. Um the uh, fascinating story of Jack's stupid tattoo comes to mind, although that's about 12 episodes away. Um, my initial frustration was that this is a very different kind of Lost episode. Uh, very, very few of our uh, main cast members. Now you might say, oh, well, uh, Juliet and Ben are now, you know, the, the, their, their actors have been promoted to, to full uh, series regulars. Yeah, fine, but uh, we don't really know them that well. <laughs> Certainly Ben, we, we hardly know, despite having uh, seen him in so many episodes. So I think that you, on first viewing, it's slightly jarring that you're, you're going to spend so much time away from the concept of the show that you have been used to for 49 episodes. Uh, there's no beach, I mean, aside from... Ben and Kate having their little breakfast on the beach. But there's not, you know, the Survivor's Beach. There's not kind of the island monster mystery. There's kind of not really even the Dharma mystery. I mean, we've basically learned all that we're going to need to learn about Dharma. I mean, yeah, there's more details, kind of small details to come in. But we kind of get it, you know, science, 70s, some of it wacky, some of it fringe science, no pun intended, some of it more legitimate, um, large cast is not the large cast is not here. You know, very very small cast of essentially our three characters that we know. One character in the form of Ben that we hardly know, and then and then Juliet, who's brand new to us, although uh, a welcome addition, as we'll discuss in a bit. So I think that that's this is going to be an interesting stretch of episodes to go on because, as I said in last week's podcast. There, you know, ABC made this decision to air the first six episodes in the fall, go away for 12 or 13 weeks, then come back and do the rest consecutively. Um, I was not that impressed at the end of the first six episodes. Um, the first, I feel like my mood soured over that really long break. I think that that was not the way to go in terms of give us a little nibble now and then come back. Well, if you don't like the appetizer, you might not stay for dinner. Um and, uh, you know, the first four episodes after that break, so episodes 7, 8, 9, 10, with that seventh episode, 307, I had said, if this doesn't get better in a month, I'm going to bail on the show. So, uh, obviously, that didn't happen. And, uh, you know, as Pete and I discussed last week, there were <laughs> there are some solid episodes in that first, first four back. But anyhow, after uh, we've just crashed crossed the 19-minute mark here. Shall we properly get into this episode? You're probably saying yes. So here we go. Any of these current concerns that I may have had uh, for the purposes of our rewatch, it certainly started to disappear immediately once the episode started, once we had the previously unlost behind us, because, you know, hey, it's Juliet. It's a familiar face uh, upon this repeated viewing. I'll mention just as a side note, too, I know that I Seasons one and two, I, I've seen those episodes a bunch. I think starting with season three, I didn't have it on DVD. It was a little less... 
Um, I don't know. I was a little less attached to the show with season three. Um, and then obviously by the end of the season, came back with gangbusters. But let's stick with this episode. I do apologize. It's, it's an interesting moment to now be in season three. Um, but anyhow, we see with Juliet, she's upset. Uh, you might recall that's because she knows she can't leave the island. Um, it's also great, too, seeing Othersville for the first time again, if you know what I mean. Uh, and then, of course, we have this wonderful moment where the show is having this great meta comment about itself. It's not even literature. It's popcorn. And why isn't it literature, Adam? I'm dying to There's know. There's no metaphor. It's by the numbers, religious hokum pokum. No metaphor? It's science fiction. Now I know why Ben isn't here. Excuse me? I know the host picks the book, but seriously, Julie, he wouldn't read this in the damn bathroom. Well, Adam, I am the host, and I do pick the book. So not only do we, of course, get, you know, first mention of this great and powerful Ben, not only do we get uh, a little character moment there from Juliet reasserting herself, uh, particularly as she looks very lovely on the couch, I might add. I'm, I, I'm quite, quite taken by Juliet and her return to the show, or at least return to my viewing of the show. But uh, to me, the big thing there is they're very clearly, they're tweaking the nose of the audience. They're, they're not just tweaking anybody's nose, it's our nose. They're saying, you know, they're, they're mirroring our discussion and critical discussions of, is the show uh, great literature? And I'm kind of using that in a non-printed sense. You know, is it art or is it just kind of pop, you know, pop fiction stuff? Is it, you know, the funny pages or is it is it really great writing? Um, and then, you know, I, I think that they're kind of immersed in this discussion themselves. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm even saying there's no metaphor. I mean, that um, certainly if the probably too lengthy discussion about the show and how it's informed by, it, by its time and its world events certainly shows that there is, uh, is, there, is the room for critical analysis here. Um, it's uh, just a fun little clip. Nice to start out of the gate saying, you know, we know you're out there, viewers. You know, it's a nice, nice little moment. Um, their conversation, of course, is, uh, is uh, interrupted by a presumed earthquake, which leads us to seeing Flight 815 overhead, breaking apart, crashing. Disaster that we've uh, that we've uh, not seen from this point of view revealed to us this way for the first time. Goodwin, you see where the tail landed? Yeah, probably in the water. You run, you can make that shore in an hour. Ethan, get up there to that fuselage. There may actually be survivors, and you're one of them. A passenger, you're in shock. Come up with an adequate story if they ask. Stay quiet if they don't. Listen, learn. Don't get involved. I want lists in three days. Go. At this point, we just recognize this as Henry Gale, and then it's revealed who he actually is. So I guess I'm out of the book club. If there was any confusion, he is the great and powerful Henry that some dare not uh, ever cross, especially for the choice of book club reading materials. With that, the shot pulls back to indeed reveal that we are on our island.
This uh, introduction also, uh, obviously, it's jaw-dropping, it's shocking, and uh, I think that it, it rather starts the new habit of the show thrusting new people on us, whether we like it or not. Uh, you know, I think that certainly, uh, even if you loved uh, season three, I think there's a certain segment of, of yourself that probably was saying, well, what about Hurley, what about Saeed, what about this, what about that? Um, but no, they're going to stick with these people, um, just as they do with uh, the freighter folk, just as they do with uh, kind of the return to Dharma, uh, and so on and so forth. The show, for better or for worse, you know, part of how they, um, I don't want to say stretch the story, I don't want to say fill the story, but start a, part of the um, the twists and turns that the show takes is to is to introduce new characters that bring about new experiences, not just kind of new new places or new challenges from old characters. Um, of course, it's great to see Ethan and Goodwin return for what are essentially bit parts. It's one scene. Um, I hope it was worth their while. I mean, on the one hand, it's a, a long flight from L.A. to Hawaii, but uh, on the flip side, you get to go to Hawaii and work for a couple days. So um, there's also just that, that excellent kind of zoom cut uh, zoom back type thing to show that uh, indeed Othersville is smack dab in the middle of the same old island that we've been on all along. Uh, you heard there at the clip we go to the title card and afterwards we see Jack hanging out watching a playground or a school. It's never a good sign when a dude sits in a car and watches the playground. Um, we do see, of course, uh, a glimpse of uh, you know, I don't know how obvious it is visually that it is Sarah who's who he's watching. I think, you know, you see blonde woman, you can kind of see her from afar. It's obvious enough that it's supposed to be her if you're seeing it for the first time. But um, I don't know how how clear it is. Um, nonetheless, he's he's clearly upset and he's kind of filled with pent up Jack rage that's going to spring at the wrong time, I'm sure. The flashback ends with Jack in a dark room, complete with kind of hanging chains and green light. It's suddenly feeling very much like a Saw movie. Uh, and, uh, you know, reminder too, of course, and, you know, we, we have it repeated by the end of the episode, but reminder that this was a Dharma room where they did kind of marine biology stuff, you know, just like the Dharma shark that had the Dharma logo. Uh, Jack realizes he's alone. He yells for Kate. He bangs on the wall finds out that there's this glass partition that's all very convenient because the script takes us to Kate and uh, Kate is in some sort of locker room shower Tom Friendly tells uh, tells her to take a shower and uh, she's initially concerned that he's going to be watching or his interest is to watch and uh, he says that uh, she isn't his type now uh, I hope that the listener who was concerned about uh, political connections will pardon me here very, you know, I won't say very clearly. Obviously, it's later revealed that uh, Tom is a homosexual. This is looked at as uh, as uh, an initial indication of that. And I think uh, it's interesting that essentially thus the show here in this scene, when Tom says, you're not my type, uh, he introduces the fact that Tom is homosexual. and he com- And the show comments on it by making his sexuality have zero impact to the entire series which I think in and of itself is uh, 
is uh, well, probably a certain statement that they're that they're striving for. Anyhow, from the uh, palatial humanity of a hot shower with soap and uh, and uh, shampoo, which come to think of it, didn't Evangeline Lilly have a a uh, advertising contract for Garnier or some other shampoo? So I hope they gave her whatever she was. You know, gave Kate whatever Evangeline Lilly was hawking. But anyhow, from the, the humanity of a hot shower, we cut to Sawyer kept in a cage. And it's a bear cage for those polar bears, let's not forget. Uh, Sawyer, of course, sees another prisoner uh, across from him. There's no indication that Sawyer ever thinks that the guy, who's, of course, Carl, who's in timeout for being a naughty, naughty boy, um, Sawyer never seems to wonder if this guy could be a plant. Uh, I mean, we saw it with Ethan. He knows that. We saw it with Goodwin. He surely must know that. Um, to a certain degree, they saw it with Ben in that he told one story. You know, I'm not that he was planted there, but yeah, he told one story and that didn't work either. Just like Ethan told the story, just like Goodwin told the story. So the fact that you have this guy across from you who might say, hey, let's do this, hey, let's do that. I don't know. Bottom line is Sawyer never seems to uh, seems to be concerned about that. Um, Sawyer scopes out the bear cage with its "Don't push the button" button experiment, uh, which of course leads to Sawyer pushing the button and uh, gets shocked. And uh, with that, we head back to Jack, who's continuing um, kind of the whole "Who are these people? Where are we? Why are we here?" confusion that I think is indicative of this episode. And not confusion in a necessarily, uh, you know, negative way. I think it's fair for there to be some confusion. We're we're supposed to be reminded that the beginning of a season of Lost, we reset a lot. You know, it took us a whole season to kind of completely understand the hatch. Well, guess what? The hatch is gone. Here we are in a new hatch, and we don't we don't understand tons and tons and tons, despite having seen forty nine hours of the show previously. Um, anyhow, Jack's causing this rocket, uh, or rather Jack's causing a ruckus, uh, until Juliet appears to tell him to stop causing a ruckus and to introduce herself as Juliet. Uh, and apparently this is a shocking enough point that we end the act there. Uh, we return in flashback with Jack at somebody's divorce lawyer's office, right? I suppose you don't, do, do you hire one divorce lawyer for two people? I don't think so. That's not how they do it in the movies anyway. Um, but, uh, he and Sarah, who, hey, if you hadn't figured it out yet, that's when you can put two and two together to realize that that was the blonde that was, uh, that he was scoping out at the playground. Um, so Jack and Sarah have a cordial conversation. Jack's kind of very, you know, almost on one knee saying, you know, what can I do to fix things? It's not those words, but it's that kind of, uh, suggestion. Until Sarah takes a phone call from supposedly some other guy. And Jack, of course, turns into a righteous jerk, prepared to give her everything if he can just know the name of the man who's with his wife. I wish that he had asked, who is the man who uh, who took me away from my wife? So that Sarah could say, you, Jack, it's you. Anyhow, from yelling at one blonde, the flashback ends, and Jack is yelling at another blonde in the form of Juliet. He's told he's uh, stubborn while he stands on the table and literally yanks at the chains and he's having a big old fit and he's told he's having a big old fit. Uh, we cut to Kate, 
who uh, is not having a fit. She's pragmatic enough to take a hot shower with soap and shampoo when it comes along. Um, Kate's given a, a lovely sundress, and she's escorted from the building. Of course, you know, for those of us who really play along at home, if it's your first time viewing, it's all these new areas, new nooks and crannies. Look, there's guards with guns behind him. Everybody's clean-shaven and not dressed like you know the jungle hobos. Uh, it's all this new stuff for us to analyze. Anyhow, she's taken down to breakfast under under a, a, a little tent by the ocean. Ben, of course, is charming, uh, down to when he tells Kate to put on the handcuffs. And again, I think she's kind of clearly practical. She's already trapped, so why not commit to it, you know, commit to the trapping, and get some eggs and bacon along the way. Still, though, she's, you know, a fighter, of course, and asks, finally, since one generally does not ask questions while appearing on Lost, she asks Ben why he's done all of this, and thusly, Ben monologues. I brought you here so you'd look out at the water and feel comforted. Comforted that your friends were looking out at the same ocean. I gave you the dress so you'd feel like a lady. And I wanted you to eat your food with a real live fork and feel civilized. I did all those things so that you'd have something nice to hold on to. Because, Kate, the next two weeks are going to be very unpleasant. It's a fantastic reminder that we're on shaky ground here, that trouble's afoot. And uh, at this point, it's also the roughly one-third mark through the episode. First-time viewers, I think, are definitely saying, where's Hurley, where's Jin, where's Sun Saeed, etc. Leading to frustration in some circles. Uh, After the act break, Jack is... Clearly, randomly, uh, we're in flashback, by the way. Uh, Jack clearly is randomly calling random people uh, from some sort of list uh, in order to find Sarah's guy. It's creepy and it's low, and he's caught by Christian. Uh, there's a fun little moment when Jack calls the next number and Christian's phone rings. Wait, wasn't Christian lusting after her before he went to Australia? That, you know, to the point that he had Anna Lucia take the name Sarah? Now, that's fine for us to assume that, but Jack clearly assumes what we assume too, despite the fact that, let's just step back for a moment here, a wife calling her father-in-law from her cell phone to his cell phone, that's not indicative of some sort of grand conspiracy, even in a normal marriage, let alone one where things are falling apart and she might be reaching out to the father-in-law for advice, to tell him off, to for a a litany of reasons that don't involve Christian and Sarah shacking up. Um, And I mean, I would say I don't, I don't see to my mind. They never, they never did. This is Jack being delusional. And uh, the idea of Jack being delusional is something that, that we'll discuss in a bit. The short summary being here, Jack is delusional in this episode. And at the end of the season, Jack is delusional, albeit because of, uh, survivor's guilt and pain medication abuse and all that but um what an interesting bit of jack here but anyhow indeed back to back to jack he's uh or back to jack in the the modern day of the story jack is in his cage where he's refused a grilled cheese sandwich 
and Dharma, the water, uh, even after it appears that there's undrinkable water, i.e. salt water, dripping into his cell, hmm, gee whiz, Jack, why do you think there's salt water dripping? Gee, I guess you'll find out later, right? You're not going to put two and two together. That generally, salt water doesn't drip from ceilings. Anyhow, uh, Juliet suggests, uh, you know, here Jack is continuing to refuse food and water, despite the fact that there's undrinkable water in the cell, and Juliet is suggesting that he's in bad shape, right after he's heard Christian's voice coming from an intercom that does not work. Uh, at any rate, the ensuing conversation is great. Juliet asks Jack about his life. Jack says he's a repo man that takes things away from people, like the others have done to the castaways. Uh, and he says that there's no point in marriage, suggesting, or perhaps he says it outright, that he was never married because, punchline, not that it's comedy, but you know his point being, there's no point in marriage. He flips it back to Juliet, and, you know, being, of course, sexist and condescending, because that's Jack, because he has woman issues, um, he asks her what she does besides making sandwiches. I wonder, um, I don't know, we see so little of Jack's mom. She appears so little in the show. Uh, I know we've discussed on previous podcasts, that's probably just a function of story and uh, show economy, you know, she's not at the wedding between Sarah and Jack. Why? Well, to bring that actress out to Hawaii to what? To have no lines in an episode that's about, you know, uh, Jack and Sarah, an episode that, that's about Jack and his dad. Um, you know, uh, th I think that's why mom kind of fades off the radar. But if we look at it internally within the story, I'm, I'm not sensing that mom was... You know, Jack's mom was a milk and cookie type mom that he was very close to her. Uh, I, even if she was a perfectly fine mom, I think that he had such hero worship for his father that there wasn't much room left in his heart to uh, to uh, look after mom. But anyhow, so here we have Jack kind of taking that, you know, sexist anger at Juliet. What do you do besides making sandwiches? Juliet doesn't bat an eyelash and says that she didn't make it. She simply put the toothpicks into it. It's a cute line, but it also shows her intelligence, and it suggests that she's farther up the food chain than Cook. Irony being, you know, Hurley's going to become a, a cook for in one of these Dharma stations uh, before too long. The conversation goes back and forth, ending with Juliet eating the sandwich while she leaves, which is a nice bit of just desserts there. Uh, with that, we head back to Sawyer, still trying to figure out the bear feeder. Uh, Carl is now talking to him about life in the other camp, and Carl works out an escape. This, of course, is a hint that Carl is um, genuinely not part of the happy, you know, kumbaya other uh, camp, so, so to speak. Um, I think at this point, first viewing, you're you know you're, you're you're trying to figure out whether this is legit or not. Certainly by the end of the episode where Carl's returned, kind of beaten and bloody for being a, a naughty boy who escaped, um, you know, there is this legitimate uh, suggestion that there's a, um, that there's a, a, you know, break of uh, faith, break of the cult of personality of Ben, as you might say. Anyhow, with Carl working out this escape, unfortunately, Carl tells Sawyer to run left while Carl runs right. 
which leads to Sawyer being caught by Juliet in about two seconds. It's a nice touch, by the way, that these future soulmates meet with Sawyer on the run and Juliet, you know, literally shocking the hell out of him, taking a taser and, you know, tasing him. Uh, Sawyer's returned to his cage and there's this nice little uh, moment where there's just a great camera shot where the camera is hooked up to him as he's dragged and thrown into his cage. Uh, you've probably seen camera shots like this before here and there. At any rate, he's wearing some kind of rig where um, his body isn't moving much within the frame, but everything else is, you know, because the camera's kind of strapped to him. Nice little, you know, just kind of like a weird, weird view. Um, it, it, it suits things because he's waking up and he's groggy and feeling very kind of, uh, you know, self-centered, not in an egotistical way, but just very kind of hazy and all he can kind of concentrate is on himself, not the world around him. But um, anyhow, after that, there is, of course, the great moment where Sawyer has been merely returned to his cage. You know, oh, he he got out. We're going to send him back. But Carl, beaten and bloody, is made to apologize to Sawyer for involving him in his breakout attempt. Um, I think there's a bit of... um, there's a bit of uh, humanity shown there by the others that, you know, of course Sawyer's going to try to escape if given the opportunity, but Carl, you were a really naughty boy again. Of course Sawyer's going to do that, but why Why involve him in your own poor decision, Carl, is is the, the message, I think, delivered by the others. Anyhow, back to Jack, where he's given another chance to eat and drink. By the way, by my count, it's three total. The first time, no. The first time, yes, and he tries to escape. And then the third time, he sits in a corner like a good boy, having having given up. Um, speaking of given up, this second time, he's told that if he does accept the food and drink, he actually isn't giving up. Um, and then, uh, you know, presumably goes to sit in the corner so mommy can bring him lunch. Uh, and, I mean, incidentally, Juliet does kind of come across as very maternal in that scene. We uh, we get taken to flashback, where Jack sees Christian <gasps> take a phone call. And that leads Jack to a silent, jealous rage. Because who in the world would call Christian Shepherd if not for his secret love, uh, you know, Sarah Shepherd, who's in the process of divorcing, to end up with a better man? Or, Jack, somebody else in the world called a doctor. That's the other choice. That this head of surgery at this, at this big hospital, someone else called him a friend, a co-worker, an underling, you know, UPS, the pizza man, 1-800-Flowers.com. Any of those people could have called him. But no, Jack, blinded by rage. As I said before, if we you know look at this in the big picture, here he's blinded by rage. Season opener, and then come the season closer, he's blinded by prescription drug abuse. Um, nice, nice shape there. Nice kind of contouring to the to the series. Um, he follows Dad all the way to some secret hotel at a clandestine meeting of. Hey, if you watch on widescreen, that clandestine meeting says "Friends of Bill W." Isn't that Alcoholics Anonymous? Yes, good job, Jack. You've tracked your father down to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Anonymous guy. Not, you know, that's my dad, just anonymous. 
Jack, of course, continues to rant. I mean, th- this is probably the most frustrating scene that Jack will that Jack ever appears in because he's continuing to rant, even though it's clear that this is a therapy group. The ironies increase. Jack, having settled into a substance abuse group, and the sun rocketing towards his own substance abuse in 20-plus episodes or so. Uh, obviously, there's you know a, a, a number of years between those two, but you know in the in terms of the momentum of the show, Jack's headed to a similar place. Well, similar place as Christian is in, but at least Christian, at some point in his addiction, is able to reach, um, you know, reach a this you know this self help group. Further, by the way, despite Christian having a legitimate addiction. And having decided to do something about it, which I'm sure can't be easy for anyone, let alone a man as proud is the wrong word, a man as outright egotistical as Christian. So despite all of this, Jack connects it all. It's all connected to his crazy theory of Christian and Sarah having an affair. To the point that Jack knocks his father down, and not just knocks him down, knocks him down into the 12-step posters. Can you see this? being explained to the cop that this is a please officer we would appreciate it if you didn't take down anyone's names here because this is an alcoholics anonymous meeting and these are all people trying to improve their lives oh if you want to write down the name of the guy who didn't i don't know if there's a sign-in book or isn't or whatever i don't know how it works but you know the guy who we can all agree here uh, wasn't invited to the meeting and wasn't here to deal with alcohol addiction, you can write his name down as you book him. But everybody else, sir, could you... We're just trying to make ourselves better people in this world. You know, never has Jack been so low, or frankly, never has Christian been so high-minded. There, deep breath. Flashback over. Jack, uh, Juliet delivers Jack's food. And Jack uh, promptly attacks her, overpowers her, and takes a shard of plate to her neck in order to have a hostage. He takes her to the end of the hall, and uh, Juliet refuses to open that door. She says they'll, they'll die if they do. And this, of course, as we're going to learn by the end of the episode, this is a door to the sea. Ben interrupts, and uh, shockingly doesn't respond much to Jack threatening to kill Juliet. Um... This will become kind of further shocking when we learn that Jack, that uh, Juliet and uh, Ben had a romantic connection. And then we also have the big reminder that such elan and arrogance out of Ben won't work with Alex down the line. When there's that, you know, oh, go ahead and kill her, and Kimi does indeed kill Alex. Anyhow, Ben hammers home that point when he runs for the escape route. You know, ah, oh, Ben. Uh, which leads to trapping Juliet as Jack opens the door to the sea. Jack and Juliet make it to uh, a side room just in time. Jack hits what I'm assuming is a pump button, um, although I can't totally be sure. Maybe it's just a diversion for him to turn that way so he can get, you know, boom, punched in the face by Juliet, which is what happens. And uh, that's a nice reminder that Juliet is meant to be Jack's equal. This isn't Kate, you know, who's like, I'm on the run, and I always make bad decisions. Lecture me, Jack. Send me to the corner. You know, this is Juliet, a fellow doctor, somebody who's 
his equal in so many ways. It's it's wonderful to have her there. Plus, she's a, she's a pretty lady. I like her. Good to good to have you back, Juliet. Uh, with that, the story takes us back to Sawyer. So, if I guess if Juliet isn't doing it for you, on to Sawyer, um, who kind of quickly has become the B story at this point. Um, he finally gets all three bear buttons to work by pushing them at the same time. Uh, why is he working on this? I think the answer is it's a very Sawyer answer. Why not? Why stew? Why bang against the steel bars? Why yell into the sky? Live in the moment. There's a puzzle in front of you. Solve the puzzle. See what happens. He seems genuinely happy to have solved it as well. To get the reward music, you know, I think that solving it, that's the happiest that he is. And there's also some music, some John Philip Susan music. And it's a little bit of a letdown. Then he gets the the bear food, which is a further letdown. You know, he does, however, get the water, which I think was his objective all along. But to me, it's just this very Sawyer moment of, you know, well, there's a, there's something to figure out, so let me figure it out. It's the intellectual guy uh, who sits on the beach and reads because there's a book to read. Because why, you know, why, you know, yell into the trees that this, that this never should have happened? Why build aqueducts as Michael wanted to do? Why, you know, just... Accept your situation and work within it. Make the best situation you can within the the current parameters. Very, very Sawyer. Anyhow, uh, across from him, we see Tom bringing Kate to the other cage. And she's very sad and looks emotionally beaten. I wondered, as I watched this episode, was there something that happened in between breakfast and now? Timing suggests that there was. Um... I believe somewhere in Lostpedia, I have it farther down the notes here, uh, references made to there being uh, another scene that was shot where she tried to get out of the handcuffs. Um, It kind of almost works without the scene because she looks emotionally beaten to the point that I think we're starting to wonder, you know, whatever it was that Ben made reference to, that the next two weeks are going to be difficult. Has that started? What is the experimentation? Is it... You know, has some brutal thing happened to her physically? You know, has it been, you know, electric shocks? Has it been something physical or intimate? Or, you know, we, we just, our minds start to head in this direction of, you know, my goodness, the the mighty Kate who can be cornered but who never stops fighting. What has happened to her that she's silent to the point that at one moment before she speaks to Sawyer, she had been so silent for so long that... Of course, I knew nothing kind of lasting had happened to her, but I kind of had this flash in my head, like, what a shocker it would be if all of a sudden she started to talk and, like, you know, like, her tongue had been cut out or something like, you know, something like that. It's almost to that degree of, like, something has happened to her that she can't get back, that, you know, she can't ever turn back the clock. So it's better seeing that than, oh, she really tries to get out of those handcuffs and ends up cutting herself and realizing that, you know, she's trapped for realsies. So that then leads, that kind of tenderness leads to a tender moment between Kate and Sawyer. True kindness coming from Sawyer's part. He kind of throws her the, uh, the uh, uh, bear biscuit. Uh, she catches it, which I thought was an interesting take. Like what, what he sends her way, she can catch. Um, <laughs> I don't mean that as a metaphor for their future boot knocking, although I think that some of Sawyer's kindness is meant to remind us or meant to 
to suggest that that's going to happen. But I think it's just demonstrating for us that Kate is Sawyer's equal. Kate is not Jack's equal, but Kate, Kate and Sawyer are very much aligned. And then with that, we head back to Jack, who asks questions and gets answers. Mostly. It's an aquarium. Excuse me? This thing's for what? Sharks? Dolphins, too. We're underwater, aren't we? Yes. Is this one of their stations, the, the Dharma Initiative? They called it the Hydra. So you people are just... whatever's left over of them. Well, that was a long time ago. It doesn't matter who we were. It only matters who we are. Now, do you see what they did there? Do you note how Jack gets straight answers for a number of questions? But not the last one. Uh, you know, he says this was an aquarium. Yes, it was done for sharks and dolphins, meaning, yes, sharks and dolphins. He does not get a straight answer for this idea that the others are Dharma leftovers. It's a huge clue to us, I think. Now, to be fair, there's definitely suggestive answering on Juliet's part that makes it seem that they are Dharma folks, but she never commits to that. She's thinking about, you know, this notion of. Uh, uh, it doesn't matter who we were, it's who we are. That's because she's trapped there. It doesn't matter who she was. The reality is she's staying on the island. Uh, that's her new reality. And um, that's what she's referring to. So it's a, you know, it's a bit of a cheat because I think that we're meant to think that they're Dharma folk. But even on first viewing, I think if you go back, you realize direct answer, direct answer, direct answer indirect answer you know that maybe the writers were trying to futz with us a little bit uh, with that we cut to flashback it's jack in jail for you know beating up an older man at an aa meeting and uh he's been bailed out by sarah who clearly here is the bigger person uh she's called him a cab but he follows her out and she's seen headed to a car with a rather imposing guy standing out the outside of it Jack yells at her about needing to know who he is and what he does and, you know, social security number and blood type and it's just, you know, blah, blah, blah. I half wanted Jack to punch Sarah while outside of a police station, if only so that he could go to jail again and just, you know, shh, just be quiet. Sarah reveals that uh, she knew that Jack was in jail because Christian called her, called her while very, very drunk. The implication being that Jack knocked his father off the wagon. The further implication is that Jack pushed his father onto the path, which ended up killing him. Which, of course, ends up being this lovely little cycle here, because pushed on that path by his son, Christian, you know, spirals lower and lower until finally, uh, you know, um, making the mistake on the pregnant woman, uh, being kicked out of the hospital, going to Sydney to see his other child. Perhaps his other child will love him more. Maybe that's what he was thinking, uh, which 
you know, drinks himself to death, puts Jack in Australia, puts Jack on the plane. Who put Jack on the plane? It's not some grand conspiracy. It was Jack. Jack indirectly did it by knocking Christian off the wagon, and Jack did it directly by buying that ticket to go collect his father. With that, we're uh, back at Hydra Island, and Jack is given another chance to get food. This time, he puts his back to the wall again, but he's obviously beaten. This time, he really has given up, leading us to... Good work, Julian. I think the clip doesn't quite convey how sneeringly Juliet responds to Ben, but it works nonetheless. What was the objective all along? It seems the objective was to get Jack to comply, to to break Jack emotionally. And there he is, sitting in the corner, a beaten man, Ben standing upright, smile on his face, his minions doing his work. And, uh, it's that, that first step into a larger world here that we see uh, at the end of this episode. And, of course, though the episode is over, the podcast is not, as we clock towards what's been a, a decent-length uh, podcast here. But let's take a look at Lostpedia to see what little bits and pieces I've missed. A uh, couple, of, couple of big things, a couple of small things. One is the nurse that speaks to Jack was the same one who checked up on Locke in Deus Ex Machina which probably is a result of them casting a nurse, you know, kind of like the on-set medical advisor uh, to, to be the on-screen nurse. But even if it isn't, if you just cast an actress, nice touch. Uh, another bit, according to uh, the official Lost podcast, Lindelof explained that the two cities of the title refer to the two societies of the others and the survivors. If that's the case, then it's really not a great title. I don't like... It kind of doesn't work internally. A city is a place, not a collection of people. Well, a city is both a place and a collection of people. We don't see the place belonging to the survivors, blah, blah, blah. It's... I think the title is more pretentious than accurate. C'est la vie. Uh, Another bit, Kate's cage is taller than Sawyer's cage and has platforms at different levels. There appear to be no mechanisms as in Sawyer's cage. Eh, Okay. Whatever. Could be the uh, the control experiment, perhaps. I don't know. Uh, another bit. Kate and Jack were shown with a needle wound in their arms, covered by a bandage, but Sawyer was never shown to have a similar wound. However, a promo pic did show Sawyer with his sleeves rolled up to reveal a bandage. Uh, also some casting news. Elizabeth Mitchell joins the cast as a regular in this episode as Juliet. The yet-to-be-introduced uh, Kylie Sanchez and Rodrigo Santoro also join the cast as regulars as Nikki and Paolo. Uh, though neither appear in the episode, a seasonally season two guest stars Michael Emerson and Henry Ian Cusick are promoted to regular cast, although the latter actor does not appear. So, just a bit of perspective there and where things are headed. Uh, a Tale of Two Cities is the only episode of Lost to feature a horn part in its musical score, which... Um, is uh, I'm assuming when they say horn, they don't mean kind of horns in general, like a like a trombone, because I think there is kind of the trombone uh, that that Lost does. But certainly the horn solo that you heard at various clips 
it it sounded unusual even without knowing that uh, that bit of um, bit of trivia. Uh, another deleted scene from the episode involves Jack saving a girl that is suffocating on the playground at Sarah's school. After saving the girl, she eerily tells Jack not to trust her. The girl was also seen in the Hydra in promotion stills for the episode. So I'm assuming a couple of things. I'm assuming that, number one, that was um, a, a, a hallucination that when, you know, for when Jack actually sees her in the Hydra. Um, I'm assuming also that they cut it for time because, well, just for time. But then to add to that, I mean, we don't need some mysterious girl saying, don't trust her. Like, is that really what sets Jack off? It, it, to me, it's just, it's very, it's very hackneyed. It's very unnecessary. Um, it's just, why? Why would you... I don't understand the purpose of having that scene. Is that supposed to be the thing in the script that makes Jack suspicious? Um, if so, you know, as I say, I could, I could do without to be sure. Uh, the last little bit here, another deleted scene had Kate resorting to desperate measures to get out of her handcuffs, injuring her wrists in the process. The resulting scars are clearly visible in several subsequent scenes and episodes. So, there you go. That's it for episode 301, uh, A Tale of Two Cities. Uh, let's look ahead till next week. Next week will be episode 302, The Glass Ballerina. That uh, will continue uh, releases on Fridays. So uh, look for that. And, you know, it'll, it'll probably be, uh, be, you know, Thursday nights that it's actually getting posted. Um, but uh, certainly you can hop out of bed on Fridays and download that. A reminder that new episodes launch to the website, iTunes, and the Lost Podcasting Network on Fridays, as I just said. So I guess that's me repeating myself. Um, also, a reminder that you can check out myself and a couple of my pals from phgeek.com on the Alcatraz Podcast by phgeek.com. That's been getting some nice uh, traffic, some nice feedback as, uh, as we check out this latest show from JJ, which... My hope is that uh, with each episode, we need to refer to Lost less and less in uh, you know, for the Alcatraz podcast. But uh, so far, the comparison has been fun nonetheless. So, if you would like to share feedback, here's a few ways to do it. You can call the voice message line at 732-707-1815. You can say hello to me on Twitter, where I'm Looking Back Lost. You can leave, uh, send an email to lookingbackatlost at gmail.com. You can leave a comment on the webpage, lookingbackatlost.podbean.com, and you can find the show on iTunes, where reviews are always very, very much appreciated. So with that, thank you everyone for listening to this, the 50th episode of Lost uh, that has been reviewed here, and I will join you all again next Friday for 302 The Glass Ballerina. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Superb.